The first reading is taken from Proverbs 24, verses 27 to 34. Finish your outdoor work and get your fields ready. After that, build your house. Do not testify against your neighbour without cause, or use your lips to deceive. Do not say, I'll do to him as he has done to me. I'll pay that man back for what he did. I went past the field of the sluggard, past the vineyard of the man who lacks judgment. Thorns had come up everywhere, the ground was covered with weeds, and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed, and learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit, and scarcity like an armed man. The second reading is from Proverbs chapter 26, verses 12 to 16. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who answer discreetly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus said, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be at work in us by your word, breathed out by your Holy Spirit, and written down by the apostles and prophets. So we pray now that you, Holy Spirit, would be at work in us, breathing this word back into our hearts and lives. And we ask this, Father, that it might be for your glory, that we would do the work you command, that is to trust in your Son and in his name, go from this place to love and serve to your glory alone. We ask these things for your precious name's sake. Amen. Well, do please uh, be seated. We are, as John said, uh, coming to the third of three uh, occasional uh, looks at the book of Proverbs. Uh, and again, for those of you who have not been uh, with us, uh, the book of Proverbs, the first nine chapters uh, are sequential. Uh, and one can uh, bite them off in chunks uh, like uh, we do uh, in our normal pattern on uh, any Sunday here uh, at St. John's. Uh, but then the great bulk of the book of Proverbs, chapters 10 through 29, uh, are a series of mostly individual sayings. Although, as you will have picked up from Mary uh, reading those two short sections, sometimes uh, a certain thematic Proverbs are drawn together, uh, but there are many more uh, in the book of Proverbs about work. And it's that theme of work uh, that we are uh, hoping to address uh, this morning. Uh, You might think it ironic uh, that here I stand uh, as a clergyman going to talk to you about work. If I had a pound for every time someone has said to me, oh, it's Sunday, it's your one day of work, uh, well... I would be doing better than I would with my Church of England pension. Uh, My typical response, though, uh, honed over the years when someone says uh, that with a dry chuckle, as they always do, is, do you know what? After the exertion of a morning's work, I need a good nap on a Sunday afternoon. 
That's because I'm putting into practice what I taught you two weeks ago, Proverbs 26, verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Well, feel free to keep making the joke, but you know where my response is coming from if you are going to continue with it. How do you think, though, of your work? It's a factor for all of us. Uh, We all work uh, and we all have to engage uh, with those difficult questions of motivation and commitment and the stress that it brings to us. How do you think of your work? Is it a a dreary necessity to enable uh, leisure and pleasure and family life? Is it the all-consuming goal of your existence upon whose altar everything else in your life has been sacrificed? Or is it somewhere in between or something different again? I doubt if any of us would willingly embrace either of those uh, definitions. Uh, The reality is that there are many permutations of an unhealthy attitude to work. And most of us wrestle with that. Indeed, I guess most of us would find uh, our daily labor to be a mixture of the rewarding and the tedious, the satisfying and the wearying. How do we find wisdom in approaching our work. As I say, this is the last of these three uh, um, in this little mini-series, Mining the Treasures of the Biblical Book of Proverbs. Uh, But today we're going to do it slightly differently uh, because I felt it was particularly important with this one that we step back uh, and briefly introduce the Bible's big picture of work before we dive in to some of the Proverbs. So that big picture Uh, in the uh, Bible uh, is there at the very beginning, back in the book of Genesis and its first three chapters. The Bible opens by describing a working God. Have you ever thought of it uh, that way in these familiar verses? The very opening sentence of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth. Uh, No human being ever truly creates something from absolutely nothing in the way that God does at the beginning of creation. It is miraculous to create everything by a word from nothing. That is what Genesis describes our beginning, uh, our collective beginning as being. And yet we know, don't we, that creating things is very much essential to all or many aspects of our work. When you uh, create a meal that your family gratefully devours, it doesn't just appear, does it? Although perhaps you find your children think rather that it does. Uh, There's a recipe to find or create, ingredients to source. Uh, The food itself must be prepared and cooked and cleared away. The creation of a meal is hard work. And we could say the same about the creation of a baby or of a family or of a new company. Uh, Or here's another one. I was reflecting on this yesterday morning as I helped uh, the team set up for the uh, Asheville Camp uh, training day. The team was here all day down in our church center. A large group of people, all giving of their time uh, voluntarily, working hard all day to create a week-long Christ-centered, fun-filled experience in the summer uh, for dozens and dozens of teenagers. I was in the AV booth helping them to uh, get everything connected, and uh, if you know me well enough, you'll know that I was in my element being in there. But again, reflecting not only what was going on, but on the place we were meeting in the church center. 
While I certainly didn't create that building, uh, like many of you at the time, 10 years ago, I poured hundreds of waking hours into the creation of those bricks and mortar and lost plenty more hours as well as we wondered how we were going to build it and pay for it. Now, creating is very much an aspect of our work as well, if not the whole of it. So why do we do it? Why do we work? Well, as I say, the Bible introduces, uh, opens by introducing us to the working God. Uh, and then on day six of his project, he says this, let us make man in our own image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So uh, there's more to being in the image of God than working, but not less. The Bible introduces us to the God who works and then who makes us as his reflection. And in this uh, language of Genesis uh, 1.26, it's the language of rule, uh, of dominion, of stewardship of the creation. It's the language of work again, in other words. So to be made in the image of the working God is to be made a worker. God creates, God works. We're made to reflect him, we're made to work. But yet the summit or purpose, the goal of creation, is not work, whether God's work or ours. As we come into the Bible's second chapter, Genesis 2, we hear about the end of that first week. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God is not a workaholic. He rests from his work. We'll come back to the significance of that in a moment. But as the picture in Genesis 2 continues, we discover that our work is not meant to be solitary. The man is alone and it's the only thing that is not good in the garden. So the Lord creates from his side a woman, his equal and opposite, his companion, and his co-worker. Together they work the land and build a home. And from a biblical perspective, as I've hinted at already, work, therefore, is not simply that which pays a wage. Still less is it ever more important the higher the wage that we get. No work. Labor in God's uh, economy is uh, any labor that is necessary for our living in the world that he has made. Even now, we are at work, or at least we should be. It is necessary to hear God's word so that we might come to know him, to know Christ and to trust him and receive him as our Lord. It is necessary for God's word Uh, In fact, in that same passage that John alluded to before, to be at work in us that we might be corrected from our wrong thinking, rebuked from our wrong behaving, taught the truths of God's wonderful word and showed what a righteous life looks like and how we might, with God's help, begin to live it. And so I am working. Uh, You have a choice, however, uh, whether you engage with me in this labor You see, your work at this point, if you want to honor the Lord, is to be actively listening and weighing and growing as if what you hear comes from the scriptures and is written on your heart by the Holy Spirit, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. 
Or you could choose to be lazy and perhaps keep the eyes open but mentally have switched off uh, to write the shopping list for the meal that I've prompted you to think about by my earlier illustration or just uh, without shame at all and there's always one or two of you just to close your eyes, tilt your head and begin dribbling on your neighbour. I do spot these things from standing up here in my vantage point but you see that's the choice you have to make. Will I work or will I be lazy even at this very moment of hearing the word of God? Work is, as I say, everything uh, that we do in God's economy that is necessary for us to live in this world in such a way as to be ready for the next one. And we categorize work in so many different ways, don't we? Usually to make ourselves look good and other people less so, or perhaps it's the opposite and we just feel useless because I'm just a so-and-so and not something really important. That's not God's perspective at all. We talk about spiritual work or secular work, domestic work or paid labor, voluntary work, studying. We could go on. If it is done for God's glory and in God's strength, then it is not in vain. And it is awaiting the day when he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's not about a wage. Our late modern economy makes us think that work must have actual cash or it's not real work. It's not the way it is in God's uh, plans. We're made in the image of a working God. We use those gifts that he's given us to work hard for his glory. So why is it so hard? Well, Genesis 3, the next chapter in the Bible, tells us why. Uh, We heard God's word. We, as in Adam and Eve, our forebears, uh, uh, from whom we are descended, uh, both physically and spiritually, uh, we heard God's word and we rejected it. God gave us a job to do. We didn't like the terms and conditions, and we rebelled against our boss. Is there a workplace where that goes well? And the answer, of course, is no, there isn't. And on a cosmic scale, that is what happened. And our Lord's response is, amongst other things, to frustrate our work here now in this world where we have turned from him. And so now, Genesis 3 tells us, human labor is painful toil and sweat and frustration were banished from the garden and the presence of the gardener who enabled our harmonious and fruitful labor. And so we're all in this world now where work is not satisfying as it should be, but so often accompanied by frustration and sweat and tears. And it's here in this world, with work as it is, the foundation laid that then the Bible tells its story about who we are and how we may find rest and refuge and, yes, new purpose and strength to use our hands, our bodies, our minds in labor that is not in vain and that will bring the reward of the Lord. God's wisdom is given to us so that we negotiate this world, which is at the same time so beautiful and so broken, particularly applying that today to thinking about our work so fulfilling one day. You have those days at work when you come home skipping because everything's just gone right. The meeting went your way, the project was concluded, your colleagues were a joy to work with, and then the very next day you head back into work and the other side's torn up the deal and your colleagues, you don't know what you've done, but they're not talking to you anymore and the boss's face is thunderous as you go through the door. That's our life, isn't it? 
So much uh, broken and beauty, brokenness and beauty alternating uh, in our working lives. So we really need this wisdom, wisdom to navigate the world uh, as it is. Our next step is to come then to Solomon. Uh, Solomon is the primary source of the book of Proverbs, uh, but he also puts his name to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and Ecclesiastes is uh, a giant experiment that he's conducting uh, to try and make sense of the world by removing God from the equation and seeing what he can make sense of without taking him into account. Well, this is what he says about work if we do that. My heart began to despair over all the toilsome labor, over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave it all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. It's true, isn't it? That's the way work is without taking God into account. Meaningless, pain, grief, striving. And for what? To leave it all to someone else at the end? There's no sense in that at all. Is there another option then than despair? Well, Solomon starts to give an answer in the next verse. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Just for a moment in his argument. He doesn't really resolve it till the end of the book. I do commend uh, you to read it for yourselves. Uh, But every now and again in the book he says, just for a moment allow the reality that God really is there. Well, then you'll begin to find a sense of meaning and purpose. Without him, there is no purpose. It is all futility. Do you then want to find satisfaction in your work and in your leisure as well? Well, then it must come, he says, from the hand of God. Seeking him is the key. Now, we will come to Proverbs in a moment, I promise, but first we must come to the one who resolves Solomon's dilemma in Ecclesiastes. We must come to Jesus. Because God, the working and resting God of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, has come to us in the brokenness of this world in order that he might redeem and renew us. And he, as we heard Rod teach us last week, calls us first to come to him for rest before he sets us to new and satisfying work. Jesus comes and he says to you and to me, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And we are, aren't we? We're weary and burdened in our work, never mind in everything else in our lives. I will give you rest. Jesus is the God of the day seven Sabbath rest. He calls us in him to discover that rest. And indeed the ultimate work God requires of us, Jesus says elsewhere, is to place all our trust in him whom God the Father has sent. His cross for our forgiveness, his resurrection for our hope, his word for our teacher, his spirit for our renewal. Come to me and I will give you rest. Here is the answer to anxious, burdensome toil. Come to me and I will give you rest. And having done that, he then sets us to work. 
Not the old work of anxious toil, but the new work of following him and of doing all our labor in a way that is nourished and made purposeful by the rest he has given us. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is a yoke of obedience to Jesus, but it's what we were made for. It's not been crippled by our sin. It's easy. There is a burden in following him, a burden to love and serve others in his name and to do all our daily work in his name and for his glory and by his strength and through his grace. But we have a good and kind master. And so he makes that which is burdensome without him into a bearable thing because his grace is sufficient for us in our weakness. Perhaps you've had the kind of job where you've had a tyrant of a boss and he makes every day a misery. You dread Monday mornings. But then one day he's gone and you get a new boss and she helps you to see the value of your work. She helps you to find solutions when you get stuck rather than just shouting at you or winging you an email in capital letters. She negotiates an overdue pay rise for you, showing that your work truly is valued. She appreciates your contribution to the team. Perhaps you've had those contrasting experiences in your own working lives. I know I have. And in the world of work, we know the difference that a good boss makes. Well, translate that into cosmic terms. Jesus is the boss of the universe. All authority is his. One day, every eye will see that. And he is a gentle and humble master. Truly to serve him is perfect freedom. The Apostle Paul teaches uh, the Colossian Christians uh, that they are to, how they are to behave in uh, various relationships in the home and in what we would call the workplace. The division was not nearly as clear uh, in the ancient world. But the principle is the same, and he applies it by saying this, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And so, sisters and brothers, whatever you're doing at this time tomorrow, assuming you're working uh, at that point, if you have come to Christ and are his, then you are serving him, whatever your earthly boss or earthly task may look like. So whatever you're doing, whether you're negotiating a multi-million pound deal or negotiating the Isles of Aldi or something else in between, do it with all your heart because your boss is not your boss. Your boss is Jesus, and he sees, and he equips, and he will reward, and he knows that all labor that is done in his name will bring his reward. And finally, we're ready to go back, uh, sadly now, only briefly, to the wisdom of Proverbs, because the central message of Proverbs is just the same. Trust the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. A particular application for today is that we are to trust the Lord in all our daily labor. However others would categorize it, whatever context it takes place, 
There is a way to work that is wise and that brings the Lord's blessing, just as there is a way to avoid work or do it in a way that is foolish and brings only continued frustration and cursing. Without doubt, the most insistent warning in the book of Proverbs uh, related to the world of work is the warning against laziness. Just consider some of those proverbs that Mary read for us before. Uh, We do actually have a sequence. If you want to look at chapter 26, uh, where you can see them coming one after the other, uh, unlike some of the other themes that are more uh, diverse or or more spread out through um, this book. But here, uh, chapter 26, uh, we hear uh, uh, one of the most common and most repellent characters in the book of Proverbs Uh, having one of his many uh, descriptions. Here is the sluggard. It's a great word, isn't it? Just uh, puts in mind a a slimy, dreadful creature. Well, so it is. Uh, He's uh, being characterized as someone that we want to be repelled from. We do not want to be like this man. So Proverbs 26, verse uh, 13, uh, the sluggard says, There is a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming the street. Of course, there isn't a, stri- a lion in the streets, uh, but the lazy man will invent any excuse to avoid work. That's the point. However preposterous it may seem, have you ever had colleagues like that? Extraordinary the number of ways they can find uh, to avoid putting their shoulders up against the work, and suddenly it all ends up on your desk. Well, you've met the sluggard, full of excuses. Uh, Anything will do as long as it means he can avoid doing the job he's meant to be doing. Or verse 14, as a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. Again, it's wonderfully vivid, isn't it, in the description. Have you ever tried to extract an unwilling teenager from their bed? It's that sort of picture here. Good luck with that. Uh, Here is a man not so much anchored to his bed as hinged to it. There's just no way to get him out. You wake him up, you poke him again, and all he does is roll over uh, and grunt uh, because his slumber is the only thing he can focus on. Or verse 15, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. Of course it's meant to be an over-the-top picture. Even a lazy person is usually able to bring the food back. I was taken in my mind's eye uh, to a dreadful memory many years ago when I was a student and one of my housemates uh, had their face planted in a bowl of pasta uh, after uh, too heavy a night out at the union. Uh, That's the picture here as well. Uh, The hand is buried, too lazy uh, to bring it to his mouth. And I love Derek Kidner's pithy comment on this one. The rare effort of beginning has been too much. The impulse dies. We know people like that too, don't we? Sometimes we go around our streets where we live and we see an overgrown project started decades before uh, that has never been finished because here was someone who started but was unable to continue. So again is the sluggard. He has no staying or finishing power. And yet, this lazy man's assessment of himself is in cloud cuckoo land. Look at verse 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who answer discreetly. That's why there's very little point in talking to the fool, uh, because usually the conversation will not end well for you. Here is a man who, like this, 
despising the God who made him and gave him life and so many ways in which he might honor him in his daily labor. And he considers himself wise. So little does he understand himself, how he looks before his fellow men, let alone how he looks before his God. And this warning against laziness continues into the New Testament. Our essential predisposition as Christians is to generosity. It's more blessed to give than to receive, uh, said the Lord Jesus. We're under obligation to love our neighbors, to care for those in need, and so we must and should. But bearing that in mind, Paul warns the Thessalonian church that that is possible to, to be exploited. And indeed, it seems that certain people had given up their work with the expectation that others would provide for them, because isn't that what Christians do? Well, Paul says this uh, pithily, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. That's in line precisely with what the book of Proverbs would tell us. We're not called to indulge laziness. In the end, doing so neither helps the lazy man nor honors the Lord who made him. It sounds harsh. Paul doesn't say, if a man cannot work, he shall not eat. No, if a man cannot work, then we love and care for him. No, he's talking about that defiant attitude that says, it's someone else's job to provide for me. I'm going back to bed. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. And surely it must go without saying that if we are trusting the Lord with our work, And if we are working from our hearts for the Lord Jesus, whoever our earthly boss may be, then we will not, we cannot be sluggards. We cannot indulge laziness without defying the Lord. And if we are, or perhaps if we're lazy and drifting in one area of our lives, perhaps we're coasting and skimping in our paid employment. Maybe we're making no effort at home as a husband or wife or child. As a church member, we just turn up on a Sunday and receive and can't ever seem to find the time to actually give something of ourselves to serve our brothers and sisters. If we're lazy in one of those compartments, it's a warning sign to us that we are not living wisely. We are not honoring the Lord Jesus with all that he has given us. And if your reaction to that challenge is hostile and defensive, then perhaps you've just given evidence against yourself that it's accurate. Well, don't make excuses. Don't be like the sluggard turning on his bed and driving away the wise. Come to me, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. That's where it always begins, with grace and forgiveness and the fresh start and the new beginning. Always and every time there is forgiveness for laziness. I don't often think about that as one of the great sins, do we? But it really is. I'll come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. And as we do that, he continues, now take my yoke upon you. Now go and serve. Let me close with some of the positive encouragements from the book of Proverbs. As we who bear Jesus' yoke get on with the work he's called us to now, as we look ahead to the rest he's promised, and it energizes us for the work in between. Just four proverbs to give you a slightly broader flavor. 14.23, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. I thought I'd include this one after the last sermon I preached to you on speech, uh, because speech is important, but this is an important counterbalance. 
Our words may be wise or foolish, uh, but either way, we need to actually get on with doing some work as well as speaking. Hard work indeed. Or 16.3, commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. Of course, it's not a blank check, but it is an encouragement to commit all we are responsible for to the Lord, particularly when our responsibilities are causing us anxiety or weariness or distress. Whether that's in secular employment or in our domestic responsibilities, wherever it is, commit it to the Lord. Commit it to the Lord and seek his wisdom and his grace and his empowering. And then you'll find that the plans you make in his sight will succeed. Or 21:26. all day long the sluggard craves for more, but the righteous give without sparing. That's an interesting contrast, isn't it? Not laziness with work, but laziness with generosity. Again, Paul says something very similar in one of his letters, uh, that the thief must uh, give up stealing so that he can get a job and learn to be generous. The opposite of laziness is not self-serving hard work, but work that enables us to be generous to others. It really is more blessed to give than to receive. Or this last one, 24, 27, uh, finish your outdoor work and get your fields ready. After that, build your house. We all have to prioritize and balance the competing responsibilities we have in a fallen world. There is never enough time to get everything done. You're not the only one who feels that. Later in the Old Testament story, God's people were called to repentance because they built their own houses before his temple. They made a wrong choice of priorities. I'm not going to give you an easy list of how we make those priorities today, but they must be made And they must be obeyed with a view to the Lord and the priorities of his word. There's so much more. Keep reading Proverbs. But that will do for now. We live and work in a world as those made by a working God in his own image. And yet his purpose was not ultimately work, but Sabbath rest. A rest that eludes us because of our rebellious nature. And as we look for meaning in a frustrated world, we find no satisfying answers Now, ultimately satisfying answers on our own, left to our own devices. Most of us are a mixed-up blend of laziness and fruitless workaholism. But Christ holds out to us the kind of rest that energizes us to serve him with our remaining days, knowing that our labor is not in vain but has eternal significance. So, friends, repent of your laziness, whether whole or partial, and take again his yoke. And as we do that, in his name and for his glory, work hard. Commit your plans to the Lord. Be generous. Seek the Lord's wisdom as you try and juggle all those different balls together. And know in it all and through it all that it is Christ who is gentle and lowly that you are serving. And whose well done, good and faithful servant is the one voice that we long to hear. And that will finally make sense of it all. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, you know the unique set of burdens and responsibilities that you've placed on each one of us here. For some of us, thinking about work uh, is an invitation to anxiety. For others of us, there is some repenting that we need to do. Please, Lord, as you know our hearts, would you cause us first to seek you, 
to come to you, that we may find your rest, to know that it is enough, to know that in you we find who you've made us to be. And so send us from here, we pray, filled afresh with your spirit, that we may live and work to your praise and glory. Amen.